0: Episode 11 of The Story of You. Today we have with us the founder of Smart Karma, Raghav Kapoor. Smart Karma connects independent investment research analysts to a host of finance professionals, such as asset managers, hedge funds, boutique investment, and family offices. It's a cloud based platform that uses technology to provide a network for independent research analysts. And karma is a Sanskrit word that means action or work. So this platform is offering just that smart work. Welcome to the show, Raghav. Your platform seems to have carved quite an interesting niche for itself in the fintech industry. How did you build your customer base and attract the research analysts? Seems like a bit of a chicken and egg situation.
1: Hi, Pooja. Hi, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we, we were confused for the first few months when we began the business, what to focus on first. But I think that's where some of our early investors and advisors helped us, and I think that probably the most sage advice we received was that it is not a chicken and egg. You should always focus on supply first, because without supply, you you really don't have a chance to get demand on. So I think for the first uh, year, or even more of the business, we were, we were very very focused on building the best quality supply of independent research that we could get, and in fact it it was. Probably only when we hit a big milestone, which was that we became equivalent to the size of at least four large banks' research divisions put together, okay. that we started shifting focus
2: uh, towards the demand side. Can you take me into the pain point that that kind of kickstarted you? Why you why you started? There were quite a few. I'll, I'll share with you a
1: personal pain point, and then maybe I can share with you a bigger industry pain point as well. So for me personally, I've um, I've had the fortune of being in the finance industry. I've worked for large banks, I've started my own companies, I've sold the companies. So I've, I've experienced different facets of the investment industry. The one thing I realized was that unless you worked at a large firm, you did not have access to the best quality information. So there was there was really a big divide between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and that divide is even more exaggerated when it comes to, you know, institutional versus non-institutional investors. You know, my mom, my dad, my cousin, really don't get access to the type of information that large institutions do.
2: So I can, I can use Smart Karma. When I, was, when I was in my head, when I was imagining it, I thought it was built for institutional investors. I can just myself go on and get an asset manager. Uh, uh, <laughs> Smart Karma, as of today,
1: uh, targets accredited and professional investors. Okay, okay, that's all right. So, so, I so not anybody. Um, so Kevin, you, given, um, given you've got at least a million dollars in your bank account, <laughs> certainly, no problem. Um, and, and actually that's that's a deliberate high bar that we set for ourselves.
2: It's kind of sad that everyone laughs when you make that suggestion.
1: Oh, I did not. I was dead serious about Sorry it. about that. We're did, very, did that come out? We're very, very demand <laughs> focused these days. So we like new customers. Um, look, so for me, democratizing the access to high quality information and making it easily and readily available, irrespective of whether you're a very large fund or a boutique fund set up by maybe a prominent fund manager. That, that, was, a, that was a big personal uh, pain point that I wanted to solve. Oh. At a... Sure. And, and maybe if I touch upon the industry-wide pain point. Sure. Uh, for the longest period of time, literally going back to the 70s or 80s, there has been very little change in how the research industry is structured. Large banks hire teams of research analysts, make them do the same type of work over and over again. Um, the salaries and bonuses aren't really tied to the quality of output. Um, clients had no clear way to pay for these services either. And what started to happen post-GFC and especially post the Madoff incident was a whole bunch of changes driven by new regulation, forcing everybody to rethink the economics of this industry. So the way asset managers were consuming and paying for research was going to change for the first time in maybe five decades. And what was happening was that the incumbents, the largest providers, the bank research departments, were finding it very painful to change uh, because it meant completely changing um, incentive structures, the entire economics. And that created a very, very interesting global opportunity for smart karma to pursue. So from day one, we have been very focused on reinventing the economics for the research industry. And that means a complete departure from how things existed to a whole different new business model.
0: So basically, just, just to make this clear for our listeners, um, you connect uh, the financial professionals to research analysts, and in a way, and, and you're sort of the middleman that connects them. Can they tailor make their uh, research reports? How does it work? Is it generic? How much control, basically, do your consumers have over the product?
1: Uh, great question. It's it's a layered question. So the, the first thing. And I think, I think for listeners to really understand smart karma, think of us as a Spotify of research. And this was actually a phrase that Bloomberg used to describe us right at the beginning when they, when they first featured our business model. And what that really means is that, first of all, we're not a middleman; We're just a very thin layer of technology. The whole idea is to directly connect research providers to investors via our technology. And that technology allows the type of engagement and collaboration that has never been possible before. Okay, because in the old world, you have sales guys and sales traders and a whole bunch of other people that sit between the research provider and the investor. Um, So that's step one. To take this one step further, we directly link your consumption and your engagement to how much money you receive from the platform on a monthly basis so what that means is every single dollar of revenue that the platform receives um, is directly tied to, to end consumption of our clients and uh, the majority of that is redistributed back to research providers based on how much their work is actually driving value-added
2: and I think as this interview is showing, if you don't mind putting on your entrepreneur hat for a second. <laughs> he actually has a literal hat. Yeah. Education was, I mean, I would guess was your first step uh, to getting everything going. This isn't, you're not entering a blue ocean. I hope I got the color of the ocean correct. No, you are entering the blue ocean. So what's some strategy for entrepreneurs who are starting a company when, they, when their core hurdle is education and not competition? you know, this might sound a
1: bit cliched, but actually patience is required. I think you have to sort of build it into your business plan that there will be an adoption curve. And a big chunk of that adoption curve right at the beginning will be around building awareness and educating the market. Because you're really an agent of change. And agents of change have to invest in education. So for us, I think from day one, we've Tried to spend a lot of time in our brand strategy thinking about the core values of us as a company and most importantly what we are not Mm. the easiest mistake that companies like smart karma can make is to go after easy revenue by replicating business models that exist and hence completely departing from what they set out to achieve a a favorite analogy i always use is airbnb yeah airbnb could have added hotel inventory to their website a long, long time ago, and you know, quadrupled the amount of inventory of rooms that they had available. But then they, if they had done that, they would have just become booking.com. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they stood for alternate housing, I mean, you can book 12, 1200 castles on Airbnb, but you can't book a hotel room. I mean, I think that's the differentiation, and that's where they became disruptive and change makers. And for us, I think it's the same thing. We have to be very principled and patient around what it is our mission, mm-hmm. and not compromise uh, by shifting and meandering from it.
0: So, you're, can we say that in your mission is to democratize quality information and make it accessible? Not to all, but you obviously have a niche market here as well. What would be your mission?
1: Yeah, I think I think the way we tend to describe our mission is really to. Um, allow everybody in our ecosystem to achieve their full potential. We feel that the constructs that the industry has placed, the way you know departments are structured, the way bonuses are paid, the way research is consumed, the way it's priced, all of that has actually led to a sub-optimal industry, which just I don't think will exist for very long, uh, given guys <laughs> like us are trying to do good things. So for us, our mission is to empower investors and analysts as well as corporates to achieve their fullest potential, um, and in doing so, we are inadvertently building the biggest research network
2: on the planet. Okay. I think that's a good segue for my question, which is: You you you've raised a Series B, which Series B implies that you're going to get pushed to to follow the hockey stick curve. Uh, maybe I'm ignorant, but in my head, uh, sometimes Smart Karma feels like it's doesn't have the scalability can you explain how it scales to the to the average listener who might not see it naturally in their head yeah so <clears throat> i think i think the first step to thinking about
1: scalability is thinking about what it is that you want to scale um, you know we're, we're not a traditional marketplace uh, traditional marketplaces tend to think about scaling the amount of inventory they have gmv etc
2: i think that's why I, in my
1: head it wasn't computing yes. But we're not that. You know. If you think about, um, let's say, shared economy companies, um, say, and Ubers of the world, they really have to scale the amount of supply in order to hit tipping points, right? Because one taxi can only serve X number of passengers a day. Yeah. On Smart Karma, we are actually distributing knowledge in a way, and knowledge services. It's infinitely scalable in one way, because we're just transporting bits and bytes. So that's one way to think about it. Now, having said that, the metrics that we focus on at Smart Karma are things like MAU Mm. and and aggregate activity. And both of those, when multiplied together, point to the throughput of our network. These are very, very different metrics to how research businesses have previously or traditionally evaluated themselves. It's not about how many reports you produce, but it's about are people actually engaging with your content And we focus a lot on that. And that's what we want to scale. So how do we scale that? Several ways. First is we have to strengthen our go-to market. We have to be able to touch more and more people. We have to build further and further into the domains of our potential users. And we're doing that by actually building a global sales and marketing
2: team. Where's your presence? Is it, do you specifically, are you, we're in Singapore, we're in Hong Kong, or is it, we're just, wherever people are coming in. It is SaaS, so in some senses it's borderless. So from a physical presence perspective, um, we've gone from a single office in
1: Singapore this time last year to five offices globally. That's Uh, Series B. We have have, uh, New York, London, Frankfurt, and a small presence in Hong Kong as well. Um, I must confess, these are sales and business development offices. Uh, A lot of our core functions, R&D, operations, legal, finance, are all headquartered out of Singapore. Um, But the second thing, which is equally important, is focusing on building the inbound pipeline. You can't just go chasing after customers. What if you can reverse the equation and, and somehow create a way for customers to come to you and qualify these customers so that the sales effort can be very targeted? So we're doing a lot of things that have actually been done by e-commerce companies in the past and we're incorporating them into our business model you know very very precise SEO okay. um, we're, we're starting to spend a lot of time and effort thinking about our content marketing strategy but for us what's very very important is to have a very rich high quality repeatable inbound funnel of customers um, every morning when I wake up and I look at our systems I should see, and I am already starting to see a, a, a little pipeline of customers that approach us overnight, overnight, overnight. So that's the second big dimension to focus on. And then there's a third dimension, uh, which is building ecosystem partnerships and leveraging those to quickly scale up. So for us, it's those three channels: you know, direct sales inbound as well as channel partnerships, and we are focusing on all three of them because. Since we, our Series B, as you mentioned, Series B for us has been a way to shift our focus from supply side to the demand side of the equation and start strengthening that part of the business.
0: Okay, and just want to go back a bit to getting to Series B, and you know, you talked about obviously you're doing something really different, the education part. Uh, um, like, what were the major obstacles getting to Series B? Did you have to convince people that this idea is real? It's Legitimate. It it needs to be in the industry.
1: We were very fortunate. Um, in in many ways, we're an early B, um, and I think the reason is because there were some very significant industry catalysts that were coming along the way, and there really aren't many global competitors doing what we're doing at all. So it created a bit of a scarcity and a unique uniqueness around us, um, and and you know, again, thanks to our A investors, our angels, our network. I mean, we speak to investors. We serve investors. Mm. So we, yeah. ha- we had a lot of people looking at us and we had great channel partners. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, Series B was easier than A for us. We had sort of enough proof points under the belt. But in other ways, it was harder. You know, the, the level of DD and procedural stuff involved in B was a lot more. And it was also coming at a time when we were getting much, much busier. So balancing focus on business
2: versus focus on getting B done, that was the tough part for us. There's only a few Series B investors in Singapore. Was that an issue? We call it the Series B gap, which maybe is going away now and moving up to Series C, but did you face that problem? As I said, we were really blessed. And I mean, you know,
1: we somehow did not have to experience that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not actively go pitching for our B. In fact, we weren't looking to raise a B at all last year. It, it's, I think industry forces um, led to our B happening. I um, and that gave us the opportunity to accelerate faster than maybe we would have originally. And in some ways it's giving us the opportunity to learn a lot more from our investors than we would have otherwise done. It was kind of being pushed into the deep end of the swimming pool even before we kind of were ready.
0: Did it help being headquartered out of Singapore? You know, everyone talks about Singapore and Hong Kong, but, uh, you know, having this great hub that you've got a supportive government, you've got, but then you have a small population, uh, you know, so so how, how do you see um, Singapore, in its case uh, of the financial technology industry?
1: You know, for us, I mean, first of all, we're not a local consumption play, you know, um, we're not we're not a play on Southeast Asia, we're a play on, you know, a global need. Um, And hence, what we really want is a place where we can have a good balance of business costs, but at the same time, high degree of efficiency and great talent. So for us, I think Singapore has kind of been a pretty good option in that sense. I mean, I'm, I'm also very, very grateful for a lot of the government support we've received, especially when it comes to market expansion, i.e. Singapore, Spring, you know, these agencies have, have really helped us, really grassroots. Um, but I think for us, one thing that people forget is Singapore is the only country or city in the world where 90% of Fortune 500s have offices. And these are some sort of regional headquarters. So in terms of getting conversations started, Singapore is a great place to be in. Uh, I mean, I, I interact a lot with founders sitting in India, for instance, and they have to do frequent trips to Singapore just to get their contract signed. We don't have that problem. Now, having said that, Singapore definitely is not enough for us. We cannot ignore the size of Our end market in New York, out in California, in the Midwest, in London, in continental Europe, in Japan. So for us, it's the way, you know, the way I saw it, Series B was an opportunity for us to make sure that Smart Karma is alive around the clock.
2: I've heard that regional offices comment before, specifically an entrepreneur in the Philippines. They were, she was kind of upset because she was always... Speaking to the representative for Google for Facebook, and that they'd have wonderful meetings, they'd make all these agreements, but that person wasn't the decision maker. The decision maker was in the Google HQ in Singapore, and then the deal's kind of over because they have a great meeting, but that person isn't isn't actually making the decisions. Yep, it's not really a question, just...
0: actually. <laughs> <laughs> I I just want to talk about your view on where you think. You know, fintech is headed uh, in Southeast Asia. You know, do you predict any regular, regulatory shifts? Uh, you know, are they, is there going to have any impact? Do you see it? Where do you see it go?
1: I think the, you know, it's, it's, it's delivery time. You know, the, we've had a lot of talk. We've had a lot of jubilation. Now it's the hard work time. And I think there are, there are enough people in the ecosystem around this part of the planet focused and working on it. I think people have to be very cognizant that certain spaces are going to be very, very, very competitive. Payments, for instance, with very large companies attacking those spaces, not just financial services companies, but also tech companies. So I think, I think the battlegrounds are laid out. It's going to get messy. That's the first thing. I think governments are here to make sure that the interests of the guy on the ground, are, you know, the pensioner's interests are watched. So they have to make sure that business practices are robust. And I think they are continuing to do that. We've seen a lot of new uh, regulations or at least posturing around the crypto space, for instance. That's all responses to maybe certain practices that weren't as good for the guy on the ground. Um, I think where we come in, we're we're a a B2B SaaS company around finance. I think uh, it's a great time, it's a great opportunity because when we go and speak to the biggest decision makers at our potential customers, they're very ready for change. They want to be seen to be adopting new practices, new business models, doing things differently. So I think the impetus is coming together from all sides shareholders, the boards, the governments, your end customers. Everyone wants something that's not just faster, better, cheaper, but a, a much better way of doing business altogether, you know, more transparent, more ethical, more fair. Um,
0: and relevant. And relevant. And and in terms of, since we touched on crypto and blockchain, and you're, like you say, the, the, the financial uh, investors, asset managers, what percentage now of their investments or uh, their interest is in crypto and blockchain?
1: Look, for real money, yeah. as the term goes, nothing.
0: Hardly okay. anything.
1: Uh, I think I think crypto as a whole has been the playground for enthusiasts. You know, I I don't see it having achieved inroads with real money investors mm-hmm. yet. Blockchain's a bit different. Yeah. I think um, a, a lot of clients have a lot of interest in understanding use cases and applications of blockchain in their particular field. Uh, Smart Karma through. Smakama has a service called Premium Services, where we uh, enable our research providers to provide in-depth, bespoke work uh, for our clients. You know, we've been we've been doing series on blockchain with a lot of, uh, you know, with with a few asset managers, but there's a lot of interest in learning in that space. So, I I think I think the jury's still out there on crypto, but I think blockchain and adoption I see a lot of genuine interest
2: so in the last three years there's been three or four years there's been three hype cycles e-commerce was the first fintech was the second and then blockchain seems to be kind of over now-ish you were around during the fintech hype cycle which was 2016-ish how has the industry changed when you're riding the wave and now the wave has passed is it is it I guess you kind of mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago where you said it's time to get down to business and... and... Look, I mean, there, there, there are kind of coin rings of conversation
1: here. The innermost ring is how does this all apply to us? And frankly speaking, what Smart Karma does and what we stand for has never been hyped. <laughs> you know, we, stand, we proudly stand in the rain shadow of all that hype. <laughs> uh, and we are big believers in that. It's exactly the way cloud technology was 10-odd years ago. Yeah, You know, it was seen as an infrastructure play. It was boring. It was like replacing servers with some more servers, etc. <laughs> People didn't quite get it. But what we know, and I think the industry knows, that research is stable to financial services. You can't do without it. Its core, it's a building block. And we're trying to make that building block way more efficient than it's ever been. Hence, we don't care about hype. You know, we spend a lot more time thinking about what our customers are worrying about, what they care about, than what the media is hyping about. So that's the innermost circle. I think as you sort of take steps outward and think about what, where we are in the hype cycle, etc. Well, frankly speaking, I think we're peak cycle for a lot of things, let alone fintech hype. And I think that there's there's a uh, there's a lot of planning that everyone should be doing and taking into consideration that we're probably peak cycle on a lot of things. I think that's, that's, a, that's a topic for an hour-long podcast. I think how much you spend at home,
2: what types of holidays
1: you're taking, I, I
2: mean, I'd be belt-tightening myself roundabout about now. Mm. You mentioned research is kind of solid within the finances industry, but then there's artificial intelligence. Is this something that you're looking into? Is it... Something that you're scared of? Do you think AI could replace researchers? Because it could replace my job in the next 10 years.
1: Yeah. Well, what's interesting is we see Smart Karma as a distribution company. You know, like a Spotify, as I was sharing earlier, right? You can distribute any genre of music. Jazz might have gone out of favor and might be time for R&B, or R&B might go out and it's time for rap. So for us, the rise of what I call non-traditional providers of research is fantastic mm. because they're early adopters of better distribution. You know, So if you're a data analytics, an NLP, ML, AI company and you're producing great insights using whatever process you're using, you wanna be able to distribute it and make money off of it. How do you distribute it? Yeah. How do you get a large institutional asset manager to become your customer? That's a very long sales cycle. Uh, requiring a lot of compliance, onboarding, due diligence, contract signing, etc. Or you just come to Smart Karma and you start receiving money the same month. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our positioning. So we bring together traditional and non-traditional providers of research, and not just research in the written form, but in other formats as well. We, when we talk about research, we think about services, a stack of services. That's why I briefly alluded to premium services as a completely different stack mm-hmm. within, within the gamut that we provide.
2: Uh, and this is kind of a sharp right-turn question-wise, but we had an interesting conversation pre-recording about customer acquisition costs. Specifically, I asked before your Series A, when you're still a very a startup, after your Series B, when you're growing, what are, what are some of the differences that you found um, in your CAC model? I think first of all, um,
1: you know, just very broadly speaking, we're just way more metrics focused than we've ever been before Um, and being metrics focused means having a lot more clarity about why we're doing what we're doing Uh, and I think having those metrics to measure also can give you a very big advantage over competition because you can build a very unique go-to-market strategy around your metrics. So that's, the, that's sort of the broad answer, right? For us, um, coming into Series B, um, we had like, you know, we had very, very low CAC. You know, we didn't have salespeople, we didn't have a marketing department, but we were getting customers through our inbound channel, through our network, through channel partners, etc. So we knew that our LTV CAC equations were Like too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think our investors knew that as well. There was, you know, there were no qualms. That's why we raised money.
0: But it was, it was also sometimes about being at the right place at the right time. There were all these regulations. So did that? I mean, did that not obviously help in terms of, you know, you really time the market right in a way.
1: Well, frankly speaking, when we started Smart Karma, which is end twenty fourteen, early twenty fifteen, nobody believed when we said that this is around the corner. so i think we are now positioned right but that has required conviction and fortitude on our part and our early investors um you you, you know timing and right is very very hard uh but i think having conviction is simpler yet harder <laughs> <laughs> but with going back to your cat question Kevin, i mean simply put are caps increasing yeah, um, and it's being designed to increase. It's, it's sort of, it's the reason why we raised money. It was to invest in our sales and marketing, hence the denominator, because the denominator ensures that your LTV doesn't erode away. You don't churn away your early customers and, and you constantly have a pipeline of new customers. So for us, bringing sustainability into our LTV cap, unit economics is a core part of our Series B reason. And we work very closely with our investors, especially, you know, guys like Sequoia who've seen this, done that, have, you know, various playbooks to refer to in understanding how we should think about some of these metrics. Um, But yes, I think for us, B involves spending a lot more time thinking wisely about cap, definitely.
0: Okay, and, uh, you know, you've spoken so much about your journey, customer acquisition, education. Can you, um, what's, Can you give young entrepreneurs, if you could give them uh, some great advice, what would it be?
1: You've just made me sound really old. (laughs) And I'm not, Huda, I'm not. Uh, I I don't know. I I mean, first of all, I think the first advice I would give anyone,
2: young or old, is uh, don't do it. I mean, you know, Why this is
0: everybody's like, well, yeah.
2: we had, we had yeah. 10 episodes and we asked that question because it's a nice question. Yeah. And,
0: and, and person yeah. says, I mean, it's it. really
2: true. It's a very, I mean, it's
1: for the crazies
0: and the misfits, you know, <laughs> it's for the crazies.
1: It's not easy. It's there are easier ways to earn a dime. I mean, for me, I think only be an entrepreneur if two or three things are in place. First is, um, that a, you've got a good life partner who understands the sacrifices that are involved at a family level Um, b uh, i mean have a bit of a nest egg you know uh, have some some sort of um some sort of security at the back of your mind that allows you to take more risk um, with the startup and i think the third thing i'll say is don't stray very far from your area of expertise Mm -hmm. I mean, if if I had started, I don't know, an autonomous vehicles company, jeez, who would have believed that I've got any possible, you know, chance of making it happen? I mean, there are very few Elon Musks who can just do anything, and people believe, you know, from kid submarines <laughs> to space vehicles to cars to
2: whatever, um, hyperloop, hyperloop, etc. I, I mean, I think we're seeing some of the consequences of, his. of, of, of yeah, the me. hyperloop. Yeah. <laughs> But look,
1: for me, I think, you know, having some sort of unique insight into the domain that you're tackling, which often comes with being an insider in that space, um, really helps. So, I mean, that's it. I think a lot of people are getting caught up in the the sort of perceived glamour of startup life. I don't see it. Like for me... It, it really is like having a kid, seriously. Like, that's my analogy.
0: So, the first month mm. is all, but in this case, the first year. No, like,
1: life. look, before you have your first kid, you have some sort of fairy tale notion of what it's going to be mm. like to have a little one running around the house and being a parent and yada, yada. And then the thing arrives, mm. and it's a... You lose control to it. <laughs> right? And you have sleepless over. nights. It takes over, right? That's what... A startup founder's life is all about. So I often joke that I've got three kids. You know, I've got a five-year-old son, I've got a one-year-old daughter, and I've got a you know three and a half-year-old startup in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some very real-life consequences, and they don't teach us in school. Um, And uh, I I just say spend a lot of time thinking and planning before really doing it. It's for the crazies.
0: Great advice. And so having said that. What do you do to relax and kind of switch off?
1: Gee, it's hard, man. Um, It's very hard for me to switch off. I I really suck at switching off, much to my wife's dismay. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, zoning out in front of TV was something I used to be able to do. Now I just actually pass out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one thing that relaxes me is uh, just being with my kids. Um, It... They're at, a, they're at a great age, uh, they really take my mind off of whatever it is the struggle of the day might have been, um, and they actually require me to commit um, my full attention to them now. Uh, and that's fantastic. Uh, so to me, at this season of life, that's the, that's
2: the sort of equalizer that God sent to me.
0: Thank you so much Raga
2: for being on the show. Thanks Raga for joining us. Uh you you didn't sleep last night because of the World Cup, so we appreciate your <laughs> we appreciate your time. Yes, I did not switch off last night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.